Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Alex Thompson about his new memoir, I'll Go, War, Religion, and Coming Home from Cairo to Kansas City. Let me begin with a moment of honesty. When I first heard about Thompson's memoir, I was skeptical that it was true. The experiences about which Thompson writes seemed too remarkable such as setting out to Egypt right after the 9-11 attacks in America with only a backpack and without a plan to study Arabic among fundamentalist Muslims, even though Thompson didn't know Arabic and isn't a Muslim, to working with combat troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, to briefing major intelligence agencies and working with top military officials such as General Petraeus. His life experience seemed more vast and more varied than a person could fit in multiple lives, let alone one. Did I mention that Thompson also earned his PhD in Islamic studies from the University of Chicago while many of these events unfolded? And yet, as I found out, it's true. He's true. And he's here with us today to share some of his remarkable story. Alex Thompson, welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. I really appreciate this opportunity. Oh, it's it's great to have you. So you're you're the the author of this memoir, "I'll Go: War, Religion, and Coming Home from Cairo to Kansas City," and it is an amazing story. I mean, it's just any one section of it would would sort of be epic. And and when you put them together, so I I, I was thinking of all the different ways that I could open this interview, and I guess. Maybe one way to do it would be when you think about this story that you've lived through, you know, this experience that you've yeah. had, um, where does it start for you? I know where the book starts. Yeah. Where does it start for you when you think like, what have I done? I mean, I, I did this. Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. I've not had anyone ask, uh, ask me about my life or the book in quite this way. And I'm really torn, but uh, you know, I feel like I really want to make a decision here. And I would say that the story really starts, you know, there is a period in 2014 when I am living and working in Bahrain, um, and it's in the Persian Gulf. And I had been living and working and traveling in the Middle East at that point for 11 years. And I'm, I'm sitting in this amazing loft in this high-rise building on an island with a rooftop pole. And I have a great job. My company pays for my car. It pays for my loft. Um, I have great friends. And I'm the most depressed I've ever been in my entire life life. Somehow I find the energy to go to work every day. But the moment I get done with work, I hop in my car, I drive home, I walk into this amazing loft, I turn off all the lights and I sit in darkness 
the entire evening, wondering what the hell has happened to me, grasping for some reality that I can't find. And to me, it's the beginning because there's a voice, this really quiet, strong, powerful voice that says, go home. Go home. And I call that out as the beginning of the story because it's the first time in the time frame of this book that I take a moment and stop and think about all of the, you know, you said epic, but crazy things I had been doing uh, for the previous 11 years. It, it's a very stunning moment that, that you've, you've painted for us. And, and what's interesting is that that voice that speaks to you, right, uses the same word in your title. Yeah. Go, right? Could you take us to that moment on 9-11, when the attacks happen, where it's not go home, yeah, but but all go, and yeah. and this starts, yeah. So you know the the attacks on 9-11 are pivotal for the formation of me as a human being, um, and so I would have been twenty six years old, so still you know already had a number of life experiences, but it stands as something which again formed me at the very core of my being, you know. And I'll give just a little bit of background. Um, I was in the Navy from nineteen ninety six to two thousand, and while I was in the Navy, I had this sort of uh, intellectual awakening. In high school, I was sort of in gifted classes, but I grew up in a really sort of poor lower middle class type family where education was not valued. And even though I was in the gifted classes, I was at home, it was sort of, I was made fun of for being too smart or not fitting in with the family. And so from 1996 to 2000, I was in the Navy and I got into, um, you know, the opportunity to learn. But by 2000, I realized that I had this ability to go further when it comes to learning. And I, I, eventually went into graduate school. So when 9-11 happened, I was in my first year of graduate school at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I was studying religion, I was studying Buddhism, and I was studying international relations. And I was like, I'm gonna go heal the world and make the world a better place through meditation. And when 9-11 happened, I was so fundamentally shook to my core, so confused about the kind of people who would be so angry to do the horrific things that happened on 9-11. And again, you know, I, I wouldn't describe it as a, a voice, but it was, it was almost like an awakening that says, I need to go fix that. Not a, we, the United States, needs to fix our policy, or we, the U.S. military, you know, Alex Thompson needs to go back into the military and then go over there and kick ass and take names. It was I, Alex Thompson, as an individual, need to understand why this happened and then fix it. And it created a fire, like an, an unwieldy forest fire inside of me that I could not stop. You know, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail, but it, it propelled me against all better judgment to spend the next 13 years or so living, studying, working with, 
you know, Muslim fundamentalists um, with the U.S. military forces, etc. Oh yeah, I mean, you're you're working with General Petraeus. You're going all over the world, East Africa, Baran. I mean, it's a, so so a couple. I'm not sure how long it is after that moment, but but then you're this, you know, 27 year old. I'm I'm not going to say kid, young man, <laughs> idealistic man with a backpack going to Cairo with no plan to learn Arabic yeah. so that you can do this. Yeah. You know, you said, how long did it take? I mean, and as I was writing my memoir, I started reaching out, you know, that's one of the greatest things about having written this memoir is that people that I've lost touch with have sort of reached back out to me and say, yeah, I remember that guy. I can't believe that the person, you know, on page 25 is the person who was also on page 150. You know, the person who I knew back then, I can't believe it's the same person. I can't believe what you've um, become. But one of my friends who was with me at CU Boulder, he said, yes, I remember. It was the next day you were walking around with an Arabic, a, a book to learn Arabic, and you carried it with you everywhere you went. Until you left Boulder, I, I stayed uh, through the end of that academic year. And he was like, it was as if immediately you were obsessed with something that you could not like physically and mentally let go of. Like I never let go of that book and I never let go of this fire, this passion. So much so that, you know, the next academic year I went to the University of Chicago where I would go on to get my PhD in Islamic studies, you know. Uh, one of these institutions, which me growing up in a poor uh, family outside of Philadelphia would have never expected that I would get a PhD, much less from, you know, one of the leading universities in the world. But even there at one of these leading universities where I was studying Arabic with, the, you know, most renowned scholars in the world. It was still not enough. I was studying Arabic for you know eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And I said, it's not enough. I need to grab my backpack, hop on an airplane and go to Cairo. And I didn't do it in a way that a lot of my colleagues did it, which is to go to the American University in Cairo, sort of be picked up at the airport by English speakers, be paired up with other Americans, take classes, you know, primarily in English, but, you know, some Arabic language classes here and there. No, I didn't do that. I went to study with, um, you know, these self-described Muslim fundamentalists who studied, um, for those in the audience who are aware of it, of, of a university called Al-Azhar. It's one of the most, uh, it's one of the oldest universities in the world. Um, and it's very strong in sort of this traditional Islamic thinking. And so I studied with these people and my entire days were in Arabic. You know, no one at the school spoke English. My lessons were all in Arabic and I just suffered and suffered for months. But it was, it was in those moments of suffering that I felt most successful, as if I was doing the thing that I needed to be doing. And, and as I was writing the book, I wrote, the way I thought about it was like someone who, you know, people ask, well, why do you climb mountains? Why do you run marathons? I don't do either of those, but for those people who do run marathons or climb mountains, like, why do you do it? And the answer is frequently because it's there or to challenge myself. And learning Arabic was like my marathon mountain. It was something that existed that I had to do. And only when I was in the trenches of doing it was I most happiest. 
you know, you describe your, you, I mean, so there you are, you're doing this, and, and what's in your head is, I am going to fix U.S. Middle Eastern policy. Like, there's this, <laughs> there's this really intense passion, drive, I mean, grittiness to just dig in like this. And the goal is, is very abstract, like policy, like I'm going to change policy. So I'm going to recreate myself to be the person that can do this. And I'm going to place myself where I can do this. I'm, I'm just wondering about how that linked up for you at the time. Like you're, you're surrounded by people who don't speak English. You're surrounded by Muslim fundamentalists. You're wanting to understand how they view the world so that you can start to create relationships and connections. Um, but it's hard. Yeah. And, 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 it, and the possibility of being that person, right? You couldn't see where you'd be on page, you know, 177. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it is a um, peculiar thing about me. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'm unique in this, but it is something about me, which is that I am always obsessed by the theoretical, <laughs> you know, again, and I, I chuckle just because of, you know, if you knew me when I was a kid, and so let's say on page 30 or page 15 of my book, my memoir, you would see a child who is suffering at the hands of a stepfather who is terribly abusive. You would see a child who's just struggling to live and to hold on to the concept of a life. But somehow within me, there was this need to always be focused on the theoretical, the possible, and the potential. You know, and so when you think about it for me in terms of learning Arabic and wanting to have an impact on U.S. Middle Eastern policy, I was in the trenches of learning Arabic, but the mountaintop, right, the finish line for that was always an ability to take that information, abstract it in some way, and then share it with leaders of our political economic, military institutions. And so it, it is, like I said, this very interesting, um, it's not a dichotomy, but a symbiosis for me. I have to be on that very practical, very hands-on and thinking theoretically, you know, and, and, and for anyone who reads my memoir, you know, those little sort of flits and flares come in because there's a whole section where I talk about being a firefighter. You know, for a, a good portion of my life, I was a volunteer firefighter, really motivated by um, community engagement and wanted to give back. But, you know, rather than sort of just tutoring or something, I'm, you know, you don't get much more hands on than running into a burning building. At the same time, you know, I want to be able to teach or mentor people in how to fight fires. So doing the tactical is one thing, but I also have this sort of theoretical thinking about it. And in the course of my life, I was just very, very fortunate, um, which is oftentimes the result of hard work. But as you mentioned, you know, I was able to work with um, you know, people like General McChrystal, General Petraeus, a number of other generals across our military that people wouldn't know just by hearing their names. I've worked on the Hill. I've helped draft testimony. And those sorts of things, you know, are sort of the, like I said, the mountaintop, the finish line for me to say, that hard work 
those trenches helped me get to this point where I'm able to bring both sides of who I am to reality. You know, and, and you, you painted that portrait of luxury of where you end up, but there are moments in your story where, where you're literally, you know, drinking out of bags and shitting in bags. I mean, it's (laughs) right. Like, and, and in more dangerous situations than, than I can number or call. Um, so yeah. you you really wanted to be in it. I mean, yeah. you know, where things were were often the most dangerous was where you would once again with the title say I'll go, you know, yeah. I'll be the one that goes out there. Um one of the I'm things re- that's fascinating about this book and and it's going to be hard to convey in the the finite amount we have is how vast the scope is of your of your journey. Um so if you were going to land us in a in a moment or give us a like, how do you orient your friends to like? Well, you know, here's how I got to Kansas City. Do you say here, here take this twelve pack and we're going to be up all night? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the way that we are talking now is how I usually introduce people to me as a person, and. Um, I think it's actually important for me to say this as clearly as I can because lots of people will run into um, military veterans who've been deployed or consultants who work for the military, even State Department officials who've been in Iraq or Afghanistan like I have. There are a number of people who have been in situations that I've been in, maybe not all of the situations I've been in, but a number of them. And I would say one of the most important things, you know, I talk a lot about veterans mental health. It's very important to me because I think it's something that we don't talk about. It's not just veterans, it's first responders in general. And like I mentioned, any sort of person who's been in combat zones like I have. And when I try to introduce people to my life, I want time. I don't want to have to be able to explain all the parts of it most importantly because it's painful there's so many moments of pain and destruction and loss and my memoir the way i wrote it is as a story of triumph it is a coming of age story that shows how someone is able to overcome obstacles that i went through as a child and then traumatic experience that i went through in the middle of my life And so how I introduce people, yes, a 12-pack is usually engaged, (laughs) but I like to tell stories, and I'd like to tell a a story now um, that sort of brings together, you know, this sort of the theoretical and the practical, sort of the hands-on, and um, gives you a sense of what really matters to me and how I sort of um, hang people on my story or hang um, sort of footholds to allow people to navigate my experiences. And one of the most important things, one of the moments that I'm most proud of was sitting in Baghdad International Airport with uh, me and a few people on my team. And if anybody has been at Baghdad International Airport, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for it, but, you know, we have that similar experience where you, you, you think you're going to get on a plane and then 15 hours later, 20 hours later, you finally get on the plane. Maybe it's because of weather or some general or some senator has come through and said, you're not important enough. I'm getting out of here, (laughs) which is what everybody's trying to do. And as I sat there with my team members, 
we see this group of dusty, dirty, like young Marines hop up, you know, and they, they sling their rifles over their shoulder to make sure they got their sidearms there. And they look at each other and they're pointing over at us. Eventually they're pointing at me and I'm like, Oh my goodness, what did I do here? Like, what's going to happen? You know? And they're like, Hey, uh, Hey, we know you, you're Mr. Thompson, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, who's asking? And they're like, we remember you, you were in our little outpost, our little base, um, you know, up north. And you were talking to us about gender relationships and Islam and how Islam talks about uh, women and politics and voting rights and all this sort of stuff. And I'm sitting there in the back of my head and I'm thinking, here are these young Marines who, from the looks of it, have been in Iraq for months and months without a shower talking about things like gender and sex and they're not giggling right they're not laughing they're not poking each other in the ribs what they're saying is you sat us down and talked to us about the quran and religious law and we remembered it and it had an impact on how we interact with iraqis on a daily basis where we would have been angry or confused or afraid and reached for our guns we are now able to say Oh, this is a, a part of the culture that we understand. We may not we don't have to like it or agree with it, but we understand it and we can engage it in a different way. And so when I think about me and what's important to me, it's taking those highly theoretical concepts around religious law as an example and breaking them down in a practical way for people who are making life and death decisions. That to me is a moment of intense pride. Mm-hmm. I love that story. I think one of the things that that comes off in your in your your vision of how you connect with people in Kansas City and and what it takes to actually be able to share your story in terms of connection. Um, I mean, I think one, it's it's profound and insightful, and two, what strikes me in 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 your description is something that's going on in your book, which is sort of the importance of relationships and the way in which you see relationships as the foundation for for change um that at the core of this and that you even in your in your work um when you were in the middle east it was about relationship building and a refusal to accept something that wouldn't have that kind of human capacity for connection and change yeah yeah, I'll, I'll start with the story again and then sort of raise it up, I guess, to a more theoretical level. I guess I'm a fairly predictable person. Um, you know, the story that um, I like to think about is when I worked in Afghanistan and I was working in, again, some of the most difficult places in Afghanistan, in uh, Helmand province and Kandahar province, basically the seat of the insurgency there. And I worked for a consulting firm that helped uh, the State Department deploy aid. My job was to go into a community, identify key needs, such as roads, access to water, access to education, women's rights, etc., and figure out how we could enable, so not give, but enable those communities to build up culturally appropriate ways to address those needs. And I went back to my uh, consulting firm and I said, okay, this is what I'm thinking and this is how long I think it's going to take me to help enable these communities. And the response I got was, well, in the northeast of Afghanistan, we're doing this, so you should do that as well. And I flatly refused. I said, 
you know, what's happening, you know, the ethnic groups, the languages, the issues that are happening in the northeast of Afghanistan are so different as to be irrelevant to what's going on in the south southwest of Afghanistan. And I won't simply institute cookie cutter solutions because it's going to help us spend more money and secure our contract and, you know, provide for the health of the company. I was like, that is not what we are about. We are about building relationships, solving problems based on that. And so that that's sort of the story, you know, I, I sort of glossed over this, but I said flatly refused. I was intransigent. Uh, it ultimately led to me, you know, uh, leaving that company um, and moving on. I wasn't fired, but, you know, if I had stuck around much longer, I probably would have been. Um, but it was a core principle for me around relationship building. And if I think about the trajectory of my work um, overseas in general, the most important thing that I did was to be able to build relationships and change I have found comes at that relationship level. One of the things I tend to say is that I don't know if the United States is good, is operative verb there, is good at helping other nations rebuild. What I know is we tend not to do a good job of it. And the places where I was, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, the Middle East in general, Central and East Africa, the, the value, the benefit, the successes in my mind and my experience revolve around personal relationships that then have an impact on other people and sort of grows like wildfire rather than, for example, toppling and replacing governments or rebuilding entire societies. Did did you could you see it when we, when you were there? I mean, you you kind of you know introduce your you know the young Alex in this is I'm going to fix U.S. Middle Eastern policy. Yeah. When you were there, did you have moments where you think, yeah, this could be fixed, or was it is it that acronym FUBAR right? Like fucked up beyond all recognition, <laughs> right? Like were there moments where you like if we just did more of of what i'm doing or what i see working like this this could do it was there yeah oh yeah for sure i mean again you know uh hopefully you've gotten a sense of my personality which is like this obsessive um mission driven optimistic type person and so the for example you know for example the work that i did in iraq again embedding in communities and working with them to identify their needs and and empowering them to um, build that up. Um, That work has, has the potential to make astounding change. You know, if you, for example, you take a look at the counterinsurgency manual, you know, something that was written by General Petraeus among others, right? The principles there, you know, the principles on which the United States engaged in these conflicts um, that I was involved in is sound. Obviously, policy breaks down the moment you you engage with it, but the, the principles there are sound. If we were able to actually do um, what we intended to do, then we could have had more impact than we had. And I'll give another example. You know, when I was in southern Afghanistan, um, one of the um, military, um, their sort of 
civil affairs types, and they also give out money to help rebuild societies. Is another arm of the U.S. sort of um, government that helps rebuild societies. Um, one of these fellows was, you know, trying to figure out how he could help this local community. And he said, okay, we're just going to tear down everything that's in the local market. We're going to tear down, you know, every basket, every bin, every stall, every, you know, horse state, whatever, everything is just going to be torn down and we're going to build them nice, new, luxurious, um, stalls like shop fronts. And I looked at him and I'm like, what are you talking about? Why would you even think that that's a good idea? You are essentially imposing what we think or what we would want in our environment, you know, in this environment, which is like completely different than anything we know. But, you know, people are trained differently. They have different motivations and incentives, you know, about when and how they want to spend money or how long they're going to be in that environment um, or how much they care even, or whether they want to be doing that job. And once you add those pieces, um, I think we begin as an, as a, you know, as a foreign policy arm of the government, we begin to lose the purity or the um, ability to achieve against the things that we say we want to do. So at my core, certainly when I was there, I would have said something like, yes, we, we need to, it's, it's not that we need to totally change. It's not that our principles, the counterinsurgency manual is wrong. We need to do it better. We're not doing the thing that we said that we were going to do. And so when I was in Iraq, for example, I led a, you know, we interviewed over 10,000 Iraqis around the time of the elections, right? And we did, you know, full-on statistical analysis and tried to help our military partners understand what, you know, we didn't want to have any influence on the election itself. We wanted to uh, allow for greater partnership and to understand what the key issues were and how we could help, like, again, and, you know, so I would have said something like, man, we just need to do more of this. Okay, we've done it. We need to make sure other people do it, you know, do it everywhere. So that would have been, you know, my, again, you know, and I said that I'm, you know, sort of optimistic and passionate and mission driven. Someone might say sort of naive and Pollyanna-ish and all these other things, but that would have been how I experienced my life in those moments. Obviously, I had moments of doubt and frustration, but when I was in the middle of it, that would have been my primary uh feeling and sense of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's fair to say, you know, you talked about how the training you have and the, the passion that you bring to it is going to change what you do and how you think once you get over into Afghanistan or into Iraq where you've been. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say that, that no one had the training that you had because you created it yourself in order to be able to do this work. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but after that that night in Bahrain, when you hear this voice say "Go home," you do, and you make this pledge that you're not going to go back to the Middle East. This has been a huge chunk of your your adult life, and I'm just curious the tremendous amount of expertise and insight and experience and training that lives within you where do you feel that energy going or, or what is it doing? Um, you know, yeah. you, you turned yourself into this rare expert, right? One that, that has information that has experiences that no one else has. I mean, you know, 
in some ways you're just this tremendous cache of riches for understanding and connection. Um, and you know, as you explain in the book, for for reasons of really self survival, you need to create a hard and fast wall about going back. But I'm curious about you know all that tremendous um, wealth that lives in you. Yeah, <clears throat> it's a sobering question. I'll say that um, because I had to make a very stark choice in 2014 when I came back from the Middle East for the last time and I still haven't been back. Um, and it was a life or death question. You know, I described being the most depressed that I had ever been, but it was significantly worse than that. It was nights of wondering whether life was worth living. And so when I came back in 2014, I had to decide whether I believed that who I am as a person um, was only wrapped up in the Middle East or if there was something bigger and something more, you know, and I decided, you know, there were, there were three things, sort of three promises that I made to myself in 2014. And one was that I would never go back to the Middle East. Two was that I would finish my dissertation, that I would finish my PhD. And three was that I would settle down. And the third one was the most difficult for me to accept, but this voice that I talked about that said, go home, sort of uh, pushed me, forced me to accept it as a reality. And I didn't know what it meant. I had lived my life, you know, for over 11 years, back and forth to Middle East, no relationships to speak of, um, you know, intimate relationships to speak of, uh, you know, broken relationships with my family and with my friends. You know, if I wasn't in the Middle East, then I was planning to go to the Middle East at some point in time. <clears throat> and this promise I made to myself to to settle down, I didn't know it at the time, but it was really a, it was really an affirmation and a preservation of myself. <clears throat> and I'm I'm extremely fortunate soon thereafter to have found my partner, um, you know, who grew up, you know, just a country boy in northern Missouri and, uh, you know, hadn't seen anything really in the world. And we connected, we met online, and he has been able to help me realize that promise of, of settling down, of, of finding home, of putting myself first and valuing that, you know, relationships, as we've talked about, have been a key part of everything that I've done. And now I would say that I, my job, my adventure, you know, lots of people say, you know, that I've just lived adventure after adventure, challenge, mount, you know, I talked about this marathon mountain. And for me now, it is to put myself first by totally throwing myself into a new relationship. We have uh, two daughters, you know, we live in the suburbs, we have a two-car garage, all things that I never thought that I would have or do, but have brought me tremendous um, joy, happiness, and um, completeness, uh, more so than I ever thought that I would get. You know, the only other thing I would say is, you know, I still have an opportunity to write and speak about 
um, the Middle East. I, you know, was just um, talking it with one of the three-letter agencies here just a few weeks ago, um, and talking about these sorts of issues and trying to provide some advice for um, issues that arise. So I do have an opportunity to contribute in this, and in, in, you know, sort of based on my experiences in the Middle East. Um, but it is intentionally not my primary adventure now, and I'm. Um, happy that so i'm a better person for it there there you know not to give away the end but i'm i'm going to at least hint at giving away the end um you know the, what takes you ultimately to the kansas city is saying i'll go to love yeah, um, and, yeah, and you absolutely. and jeremy and it's beautiful it's it's you know that same impulse um directed toward your own self-worth um after so much sacrifice for for the country and for all these people that you're trying to connect and bring together in humane and beneficial ways um yeah you know I mean, I just, sorry go ahead please yeah i just wanted to um i want to just re- i am gonna go to the end i guess and just i just want to read just a couple of paragraphs from my uh, memoir because you know um you know you've asked the question about how to get people started into my story. Um, and there's just this theme about I'll go. I mean, there are very specific stories of being in the death triangle in Iraq outside of Fallujah, you know, and someone saying, who'll go to the, through the death triangle with us? And I'm like, I'll go, you know, who'll go to the worst parts of Afghanistan? Who'll jump out of this area? You know, every time someone asks me, I say, I'll go. But there's a moment, and but all of those moments where I will go for you know, U.S. Middle East relations, foreign policy to help train someone or teach someone, build a relationship. None of those uh, were about me. And so I'll just read the, the last part of this, my memoir. And my partner's name is Jeremy. It seemed like miracles followed me and Jeremy wherever we went. But the biggest miracle was the transformation that happened inside of me. When I got back from Bahrain, I thought that building a relationship was one small part of a plan to keep me from sinking into ever deeper despair. But the more I shared myself with Jeremy, the more I realized that being in a fulfilling relationship was at the core of who I wanted to become. Love wasn't just an emotion of excitement or the thrill of a new adventure. It was the realization of a dream that I had dreamt since I was a kid. When love called, it was the first time I responded for me. I'll go. And that's the end of the memoir. And it takes us right back to the beginning in the title. I like <laughs> yeah, that. I like that. Yeah, well, I, you know, as somebody who has such a fascinating perspective, um, who's seen so many different kinds of cultures, so many different kinds of conflicts. Um, I think it would be remiss of me not to ask this question as America is, is blowing up in so many ways. You know, when you were 26 and 9-11 happened, it had this huge impact on you. As you see what's happening now in 2020 and even the last few days, which cultural commentators all over the country are comparing to, you know, domestic terrorism in the way that we experienced, um, you know, foreign terrorism. What, what are you seeing? What are you thinking about? What's coming to light? Um, you know, you're, I, I, I suspect you're seeing things that the rest of us who haven't had this, this array of experiences that you have aren't. 
And I, I'm just curious. I, you know, as I was reading your book, I was like, I want to know what Alex thinks about <laughs> what's going on in the Capitol. I mean, yeah. he's worked with cultures that are, are splintering and, you know, tried to create connection or, or tried to figure out what was going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So again, you know, um, I am not involved at a, on the ground level with analyzing or addressing the issues that happened at the Capitol as an example. And as I've mentioned, that means that I'm at a very high theoretical level. And I tend to um, look at these things dispassionately uh, for better or worse. And I, I will come as no surprise, identify the core of the issue. You know, the the attack on the Capitol building was devastating for me. It made me cry. It didn't make me angry. I wasn't surprised. It was uh, so saddening. Um, I would, I, I called my friends and I, you know, I, you know, I, I describe myself as a super patriot, someone who is because of my experiences, because of what I've seen and experienced and the people who have Americans who have seen sacrifice for the ultimate good. Um, I, you know, love the country that we live in and, um, strive and drive to make it better all the time. And so seeing that was um, devastating to me. The core of the problem to me is around relationships. Um, we have individuals in the United States who have either knowingly or unknowingly cut themselves off completely from people, relationships that will allow them to see multiple sides of an issue. And so we can talk, you know, there is a necessary conversation. And as you know, from my experiences, I'm, I'm happy, willing, and able and qualified to have conversations around policy, right? Domestic and international. That, so it's not, it's not a matter of whether I can do it mm -hmm. or not, but a matter of what will actually have that fundamental change. And it's really around relationships, I would see. Like I said, we can talk about all sorts of the hot button political issues and, and we need to work to solve them. <clears throat> but at the core of it, and from the way I see the world, is that we've broken relationships between communities and individuals who disagree, yet live with each other. You know, one, you know, one of the stories that I'll share, you know, I have a very dear friend um, who... I introduced, so he has been a very dear friend of mine for a long time. It just so happens that we live in Kansas City together, just through happenstance. He knows Jeremy and we're all, you know, me and Jeremy are part of his and his wife's life. He is a very devout Christian and, you know, has thought for all of his life that, you know, gay marriages should be illegal um, and that, you know, homosexuality should be, if not illegal, it should be frowned upon. But him and I and our partners spend lots of time together. And I said to him, I thought you thought this way. He's like, I did. I was like, well, what changed? And he's like, you. He's like, I know you. I know you and I love you and I love Jeremy. He's like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to deal with that. You know, and at the end of the day, the question he had to ask himself was not what is right and what is wrong, but do I love Alex and Jeremy or do I not love them? And again, there are all sorts of ways to fix problems, but that kind of reality 
to me is what allows us to have meaningful conversations where we don't have to disagree, but we can love and respect one another. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, thinking about the book, one way that I've kind of been describing it to myself is that it's as much as it's your story and all the places you go and all the work you do, it's really this epic in empathy, in this desire to understand across all these seemingly impassable divides and to recognize the human beings on the other side of it all. And I'm just curious for you, what would you like this book to do in the world, you know, for readers, you know, it's out there, books go out there and they, they do things or they don't do things. What's your hope for the memoir? Yeah. You know, um, I have been so fortunate that my wildest dreams have materialized. And that is along the lines of the impact that this book will have on the world which is that people will reach out, period. People will reach out, and whether it's to me or to others, and use the memoir as a way of bringing language to emotions, thoughts, predilections that have not been verbalized within them, things that they carry with them that they haven't known how to put into words. I, I did a podcast with someone and I talked about that day, those nights in Bahrain. And the way I described it, someone said to me, that's exactly how I feel. I wasn't able to talk about it. I wasn't able to share it with anyone because I didn't have the words to express it. You know, and they said, now I have those words, you know, and, and that allows, again, whether they share it with me or not is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that they then are empowered to go to their support networks and get the support and the love and the compassion that they need to heal, you know, and I know, you know, I write about being the victim of childhood abuse, about um, watching people that I care about. Uh, die in, you know, combat zones. Um, I talk about, you know, being in a relationship, in a same gender relationship. I talk about all sorts of things that people suffer through and may not have the language to share. And more than anything, again, whether I ever know about it or not is, is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that it gives a voice and allows, you know, fire you know i was a firefighter and an emt and i played rugby and you know all sorts of things uh, where individuals may not have the opportunity to share what's going on inside of them i hope you know they can open the book and point to a line or a paragraph and 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 just get the help and support that they need yeah i, I think for me that was you know um you talk about it as a, a, a kind of heroic and a hero's journey um and I think that at first glance, when I read the the blurb on the back, I would have thought, well, the heroism is going into these combat zones. But I think in the memoir itself, it's it's the heroism of candor and honesty and the willingness to voice and talk about things that are really hard to talk about so that other people can encounter and see themselves in it and and recognition and possibility arise out of that. So thank you for that, Alex. Yeah, you know, you mentioned this term hero, you know, one of the things that I um, 
so you're welcome. I hope that you know it was um, it's meaningful to you and 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 to others as well. You know, one of the, one of the ways that I sort of bring all of this together is this concept um, of this hero life. You know, and we talk about heroes in lots of different ways. And thankfully, you know, nowadays we we've sort of brought that down to even you know like nurses and first responders and teachers and daycare providers, et cetera, like people who are everyday heroes who are doing the things that move our community. So, you know, we think about heroes a lot of times, like they save the world or they save the nation, but we're bringing that down to me to the level that's really important, which is like our communities, people who are working in our communities and inspiring others to live lives that they may have never expected that they could live. And so I really try to talk about this thing called this hero life. Well, Alex, I'm gonna. I know that there are going to be listeners who want to find you, so we're going to connect to your website and to your book through the New Books Network. Um, but I want to thank you for this interview and for your time, and congratulate you on the book. Thanks so much, Eric. I really appreciate this opportunity. It was great. I love being able to share uh, my story, and I'm really ecstatic about being able um, to participate in the work um, that you've been doing. Alex Thompson, thank you for being on the New Books Network. Thank you. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Alex Thompson, author of All Go, War, Religion, and Coming Home from Cairo to Kansas City, here on the New Books Network.